Welcome to the Grow to Amazing Podcast, Episode 3. This is Tony Mays, your host. I'm happy to have made it this far. I guess three isn't so many, but uh, we're getting there. So uh, what Grow to Amazing is, is a discussion of the different uh, ways that I've worked really hard in my life to try to be more amazing and, uh, and be a better person, be a better father, be a better son, dad, uh, partner to my wife, and just in general try to make this place a little bit better uh, every day as I go through life. So today we are kind of hitting something unique. So I am starting this to be my first book review. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope uh, that it hits somewhere. Uh, so stay tuned and then I'll talk about, I'll intro the book a little bit more after I read an excerpt from it. So Early morning light was dimmed by a literal fog of war that filled the air. Set from tires, the insurgents had set alight in the streets. Clouds of dust kicked up from the road by U.S. tanks and Humvees. And powdered concrete from the walls of buildings pulverized by machine gun fire. As our armored Humvee rounded the corner and headed down the street toward the gunfire, I saw a U.S. M1A2 Abrams tank in the middle of the road up ahead. Its turret rotated with the huge main gun trained on a building at almost point-blank range. Through the particle-filled air, I could see a smoky red mist, clearly from a red smoke grenade used by American forces in the area as a general signal for help. My mind was racing. This was our first major operation in Ramadi, and it was total chaos. Beyond the literal fog of war impeding our vision, the the figurative fog of war often attributed to Prussian military strategist Karl von Clausewitz, had descended upon us, and it was thick with confusion, inaccurate information, broken communications, and mayhem. Running over to a Marine Anglico gunnery sergeant, asked him, what's going on? Hot damn, he shouted with excitement. There's some mooj in that building right there, putting up a serious fight. He pointed to the building across the street, his weapon trained in that direction. It was clear he thought these mooj were hardcore. Mujahideen, or Muj for short. They killed one of our Iraqi soldiers when we entered the building and wounded a few more. We've been hammering them, and I'm working to get some bombs dropped on them now. Hold on, Gunny. Hold what you got. I'm going to check it out, I said. It was blue on blue, I said again, calmly and as a matter of fact. There was no time to debate or discuss. There were real bad guys out there, and even as we spoke, sporadic gunfire could be heard all around as other elements engaged insurgents in the vicinity. Now what do you got? I asked, needing to know his status and that of his men. One seal fragged in the face. Not too bad. But everyone is rattled. Let's get them out of here. It was blue on blue. What the hell? Shut down, oper- shut down, conduct no more operations. Investigating officer, command master chief, and I are en route. It was a thorough, the list of mistakes was suspe- substantial. As directed, I put together a brief, a Microsoft PowerPoint presentation with timelines and depictions of the movement of friendly units on a map of the area. I, then I assembled the list of everything that everyone had done wrong. It was a thorough explanation of what had happened. I outlined the critical failures that had turned the mission into a nightmare and cost the life of one Iraqi soldier wounded several more, and, but for a true miracle, could have cost several of our SEALs their lives. But something was missing. Who was to blame? I reviewed my brief again and tried to figure out the missing piece, the single point of failure that had led to the incident, but there were so many factors, and I couldn't figure it out. I looked through my notes again, trying to place the blame. Then it hit me. There was only one person to blame for everything that had gone wrong on the operation. Me. 
It hadn't been, I hadn't been with our sniper team when they engaged the, the Iraqi soldier. I hadn't been controlling the rogue element of Iraqis that entered the compound, but that didn't matter. As the SEAL task unit commander, the senior leader on the ground in charge of the mission, I was responsible for everything in task unit Bruiser. I had to take complete ownership of what went wrong. That is what a leader does, even if it means getting fired. You know whose fault this is? You know who gets all the blame for this? The entire group sat there in silence, including the CO, the Command Master Chief, and the investigating officer. No doubt they were wondering whom I would hold responsible. Finally, I took a deep breath and said, There is only one person to blame for this. Me. I am the commander. I am responsible for the entire operation. There is no one to blame but me. Despite the tremendous blow to my reputation and to my ego, it was the right thing to do. The only thing to do. I apologized to the wounded SEAL, explaining it was my fault he was, that he was wounded and that we were all lucky he wasn't dead. We then proceeded to go through the entire operation piece by piece and identifying everything that happened and what we could do going forward to prevent it from happening again. More important, the commanders in training could learn what I had learned about leadership. While some commanders took full responsibility, others blamed their subordinates for simulated fratricide incidents in training. The leader is truly and ultimately responsible for everything. That is extreme ownership, the fundamental core of what constitutes an effective leader in the SEAL teams or in any leadership endeavor. And so that's the book we're kind of going through today is Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy SEALs Lead and Win by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. This book has been absolutely fundamental to my change in thinking the last few years. It has... How can I, I can't even really state the importance of this book and Jocko and his podcast and his tweets and his Instagram and just, you know, the effect that it's had on my life. Uh, you know, he, you know, it's not his responsibility to change my life. It's something that I've had to do myself, but it, it coincided with a transformation of my uh, thoughts and actions and feelings to that we'll get to in a couple weeks when I when I talk about the Bible as well. Uh, but it corresponds to that point in my life where I stopped making excuses for what was happening to my life, for you know either financially or physically or um, uh, mentally or in, in any other aspect, whether it be work related or or what what may have you that. You know, dealing with my one-year-old or five-year-old or my high schooler, you know, that that I was in control of my reaction to any given situation and that I could take responsibility for everything that happened in my life. And that's kind of a hard concept in today's world because I think a lot of people are used to making excuses for different things in their lives, whether it be, uh, you know, not finding a job because they had the wrong major or I've got all this debt, I can't handle it and I need somebody to bail me out or, you know, COVID, COVID, COVID is a big one these days. Uh, you know, at the same time, you still make your own destiny and you still have control over what's in your environment. And I will try to put a link in here as well in the show notes at least, but there's a video by Jocko that kind of ties into all of this and all it's titled is good and basically that is Jocko's ethos on turning any situation you're in into an opportunity to learn 
to pivot and to take new action. You are never done until you're six feet underground. And the only time that you end up that way is if you let yourself stay that way. So you can always learn, you can always fix your attitude, you can always come at something again. There may be some things out of your control. That doesn't mean, you know, in, in this case with the story that I just read, Jocko kept his job. But him taking extreme ownership doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to doing so. So he could very easily have been fired if that would have been the the mood of the commanding officer of, of his SEAL team. He could have very easily lost a job that day, and that may happen to you as well if you take extreme ownership of things. If uh, you know one of your coworkers screwed up, you but you could were in a position where you could have prevented it. You know, is that on you? Um, you know, there's lots of scenarios and situations like that that uh, that uh, we'll talk about today as part of the whole extreme ownership uh, um, take on dealing with leadership in your life and in yourself and your family and your workplace. So um, that's one of the reasons of why I'm even doing this podcast is because I finally got done making excuses about some of the things I wanted to do. And one of those things was being able to share, you know, uh, share my worldview with people, you know, through a medium like this. Uh, I love doing it. And even though it's only been a few weeks, uh, I hope uh, I hope some it, some bit of what's in here has made a difference for you. So. The goals of the podcast, again, let me go back to that. Um, Grow to Amazing, my name is Tony Mays. Uh, Grow to Amazing is a play on my last name. Uh, But the goals of the podcast are to hit my mistakes in life, uh, wherever I've made them, whether it be at work, at home, uh, with myself, uh, with with people, you know, with people in any walk of life. Uh, There's been plenty of times when I have made mistakes and... uh, needed to correct them, and I haven't always done that. So I've tried to learn from them. Uh, As far as things like working out, I am working on that one. That is the one area that I've been struggling lately, and I'll admit that uh, right out here. Uh, I'm working on getting back into it and getting after it. It's been tough, uh, given some specifics of the situation right now. Uh, But again, I am trying not to make excuses there, too. I can still do it. So, So where am I now? Uh, we are in a time of transition. For those of you that don't know, uh, my wife and I have decided to simplify things drastically for our family. Uh, I guess you could say simplify in some ways, maybe not so simple in other ways. But uh, we are in the process of transitioning to living in a fifth wheel camper and traveling this glorious country of ours full time. You're going to see and hear a lot about that in the coming days. Uh, I am working on that with my work uh, uh solution right now as we speak to make sure that everything is good to go there from a connectivity security and uh kind of and just you know work environment perspective um because i'm not in the position financially uh because of past decisions where we can just go travel and you know be independently wealthy hopefully you know some of that independence uh expands over the years but uh, we're going to try this and see what happens and our kickoff that date for that, at least a soft launch in the middle of April, and then a hard launch in the middle of May when we head out uh, with our camper. So we'll kind of dig into that later. Uh, but we're in a time of transition. We are staying with my wife's parents and uh, kind of in a little bit 
it's, you know, it's a beautiful home. It's a great home and we appreciate them opening their doors for a few months uh, while we transition into the camper. Uh, there is something to be said for family that's willing to do just about anything for you. And that is definitely my in-laws. So a big thanks to them. And I hope that, uh, uh, you know, things continue to go well uh, in, in this footprint over the next couple months. So uh, as I mentioned, my name is Tony Mays. I am 51 years old. I am a full-time employed software consultant. So I am doing this as a side project and trying to get this word out of, of different ways that uh, you can be a better person yourself. I have four boys all the way from 18, almost 19, seven, five, and about a year and a half. So it's been pretty crazy these last couple of years. And so I thank everyone that's uh, been a part of my life that's that's helped us to make it through this. So I've had a lot of challenges health-wise the last five years or so, from a bout with diverticulitis that ended up in surgery to a blood clot after ankle surgery. And, uh, you know, I think to a certain extent, I'm still recovering from that to, uh, to a certain extent. But I need to start pushing it and I need to start getting back after it. And that's one of my goals for the next uh, few months here is to, to ramp that back up to where I want it to be. So I have a beautiful wife named Jill as well. She is a wonderful person to share my life with. And uh, we wouldn't be where we are as a family uh, unless we were on the same page and working together and pulling together to make this thing happen. So we spent a lot of time working on a relationship. Neither one of us is perfect. We just do try to make it a little bit better every day and try to find some way for the two of us to connect, even when times are tough, even when we've got crazy screaming kids. We still try to make, you know, five, ten minutes even can make the difference between her feeling uh, loved and cherished that particular day and feeling disconnected from us. So we'll definitely hit on those topics in later podcast episodes as well. So I've talked a little bit of why I'm doing this book. Um, it's it's was part of a transformation of my life uh, a few years ago when I was living in a stage of denial in my life in a lot of ways and making excuses and just kind of living, living each day pretty, you know, uh, it, each day was pretty blah, I guess is one way to put it. Skating through life, not living it. I was doing, doing well on my job, but not loving it or loving life. And I definitely wasn't taking ownership for a lot of things uh, as far as my mental state, my emotional state, engagement with my kids and my family, engagement with my job, um, and even discovering, you know, what is it that truly, you know, makes me happy in my life and, and guiding myself towards that, you know, with communication with my wife and, and, and even, you know, going from that perspective of taking ownership with my wife and, and, and I don't say taking ownership as, you know, being the boss or laying down the law or anything like that, but a lot of husbands tend to, it's a good way to put it, uh, tend to, you know, just take their wives for granted, I guess might be one perspective or not really reach out emotionally to their wives and engage, you know, in a way that fulfills their wife as well as them. You know, usually guys can be simplified down into a good meal you know, maybe watching sports and, you know, the old cliches of, of getting sex once a week or something along those lines. But that, uh, you know, your wife generally needs a lot more than that to make, to make, to make uh, her satisfied. And so it's our responsibility to bring that to them and to figure out what makes her clock tick and, uh, and, and take ownership of 
making, you know, doing our part to make sure that she's fulfilled. Is she also responsible for her happiness? Absolutely. I mean, there's only, there's only so much that we can do as their husbands to, you know, to do our part. Uh, but I can take ownership over my reactions, my, my actions with respect to my marriage and, and be a loving and fulfilling husband no matter what. And I, I like to think I do a decent job at that, but I have my off days as well. Uh, just a couple days ago, you know, I was tired, I was exhausted, and I let some words out of my mouth that uh, made my wife go and shut the door and lock it and take a few minutes to herself. And I, you know, no excuses. It was the wrong thing to do. It was the wrong words to say. And, you know, I didn't catch myself before those words came out of my mouth. I was letting the tiredness get to me. I was not... Uh, you know, not not doing what I needed to do, and I was, you know, I had I was weak in those moments, and that's something I'm trying to work on every day. So, you know, throes of addiction, I, I put that in here in my show notes as well. Uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but I've, you know, I don't know if I've skated around it in the other podcast, but I had some issues with pornography uh, that was kind of preventing our marriage from being as fulfilling as it could be, definitely. And so about five years ago, I started getting some help for that as well through my church. First free in Alaska. Highly recommend it for anybody in the area, but uh, can't recommend it enough. And uh, But uh, through a program called Conquer and then a program called Seven Pillars, all from a, an organization called Pure Desire. And with the help of God and some great guys, um, it's, it's not something that I struggle with today. So it's something that, you know... You have to ask, you have to open up your heart to forgiveness from God. You have to open up your heart for help and you have to take ownership of the fact that you've got a problem. So I'm going to have another friend of mine on here as well that uh, talks about his struggles with that. And uh, I'm not trying to make it centered around that by any stretch of the imagination, but it was one example of the weakness I'd allowed into my life. And uh, it had grown rather insidious is one way to put it because it, it drains you emotionally pornography does it detaches you from the world it detaches you from your wife it detaches you emotionally from many of the important things and and uh it's something you know that is a problem for so many households and extreme ownership was one of the ways i actually i mean i started dealing with it before extreme ownership but it was kind of icing on the cake to get into that because it it uh you know, it was a reinforcement of the fact that I had to take ownership of the mistakes that I had made. So, um, the main things, main themes of the book, let's start talking. I'm going to break down, definitely not reading all of the book by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so, but I am going to read excerpts out of it. I've got some highlighted sections, so I highly recommend getting it. I am much better with the paper edition. I can't read audiobooks and, or, or I can't listen to audiobooks and, and take in the content. I can I can read books on you know like Kindle or or Apple Books on my iPad, but I don't get as much out of them that way. That's more pleasure reading for me. So I go to the hard copy. And you know, leadership the single most important factor. This book is about leadership. It was written for leaders of teams, large and small, for men and women, for any person who aspires to better themselves. Though it contains exciting accounts of SEAL combat operations, this book is not a war memoir. It is instead a collection of lessons learned from our experiences to help other leaders achieve victory. If it serves as a useful guide to leaders who aspire to build, train, and lead high-performance winning teams, 
then it has accomplished its purpose. The only meaningful measure for a leader is whether the team succeeds or fails. For all the definitions, descriptions, and characterizations of leaders, there are only two that matter, effective and ineffective. Effective leaders lead successful teams that accomplish their mission and win. Ineffective leaders do not. So, and you can obviously extend that. This is not just a business book. You know, this is something you apply to every part of your life. How well is your relationship doing with your kids, your parents, your next door neighbor, uh, your, your pastor, your dentist, you know, your doctor, your uh your, your colleagues at work, you know, how well are you communicating? How well are you taking ownership of those types of relationships? So in every one of those, you can be a leader and uh, you, there's lots of nuances to that. And we're going to hit some of those today as well, hopefully. Um, but there's lots of ways that uh, you can work around those kinds of things. The one last point on this section, and I'm definitely not reading all of this book by any stretch of the imagination. We've made huge mistakes. Often our mistakes provided the greatest lessons, humbled us, and enabled us to grow and become better. For leaders, the humil humility to admit and own mistakes and develop a plan to overcome them is essential to success. The best leaders are not driven by ego or personal agendas. They are simply focused on the mission and how to best accomplish it. So there are lots of times when, you know, uh, and you can you take that too far in terms of letting go of your ego? I don't know, but there's a there's you know there's definitely a point where your ego is the most problematic part of your personality, and I know that that was one of my issues for the longest time was letting my ego, uh, tr you know, triumph and and control my thinking and control my actions from that point uh, forward. So. So another excerpt from the book, upon returning home from combat, we stepped into critical roles as leadership instructors. For many years, Navy SEAL leadership training consisted almost entirely of on-the-job training and mentoring. How a junior leader was brought up depended entirely on the strength experience and patient guidance of a mentor. Some mentors were exceptional, others lacking. While mentorship from the right leaders is critical, this method left some substantial gaps in leadership knowledge and understanding. We help to change that and develop leadership training curriculum to build a strong foundation for all SEAL leaders. Some may wonder how Navy SEAL combat leadership principles translate outside the military realm to leading any team in any capacity, but combat is reflective of life, only amplified and intensified. Yeah, you're not going to get the adrenaline shot from life, typically, that you, that you would get from combat, uh, which is not something I've ever been in, uh, but I can imagine. I mean, uh, the closest I'd probably come is some level of deer hunting, uh, but that's, you know, hunting a deer. But I've had adrenaline shots in there that were pretty awesome. And so I can imagine somebody shooting back at me, what kind of adrenaline shot that would take. So the right decision, even when all seems lost, can snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. So never give up, never quit, you know, never assume that things are done. The wrong decision, even when a victorious outcome seems all but certain, can result in deadly, catastrophic failure. In that regard, a combat leader can acquire a lifetime of leadership lessons learned in only a few deployments. U.S. military personnel are smart, creative, free-thinking free individuals, human beings. They must literally risk life and limb to accomplish the mission. For this reason, they must believe in the cause for which they are fighting, 
They must believe in the plan they are asked to execute, and most important, they must believe in and trust the leader they are asked to follow. And you usually think a lot of times of military personnel as, you know, rule following automatons or, you know, somebody says, gives an order, general gives an order, and that goes right on down the chain to the lowest private or seaman, and uh, you're good to go. You know, they're going to do it. They're going to do it without questioning. They're going to do it, you know, and that just doesn't happen. I mean, at least not according to this book. Um, you have to explain why you have to go through the plan you have to be open to suggestions and we'll touch on all of that as we get into this book but i think the same thing goes with your family with your wife with your kids with your coworkers. you can't just do things if you're in a position of responsibility at work you can't expect someone to just jump because you said how high it doesn't work that way people are human beings and especially in business and family you can't treat them like you're their commanding officer or like what you think a commanding officer means. Uh, and we'll definitely dig uh, more into that later. The leadership and teamwork concepts contained in this book are not abstract theories, but practical and applicable. We encourage leaders to do the things they know they probably should be doing, but aren't. By not doing those things, they're failing as leaders and failing their teams. While rooted in common sense and based on the reality of practical experience, these principles require skill to implement. Such concepts are simple, but not easy. It's a phrase often used by former UFC fighter and world champion Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt Dean Lister, three-time submission grappling world champion. And I think that is the case with so much in life. It's Things can be distilled down so, so they're simple. But sometimes decisions aren't easy to make. Sometimes it's not easy to step up and do the right thing. And uh, uh, I've seen that too many times in my professional life where it's an easy decision to make, theoretically, or a simple decision to make. But then you start digging, digging into the nuances, and there's so many layers there that uh, you, know, you, can, you can get caught in analysis paralysis pretty much as well. So there are some main concepts to extreme ownership and we are going to describe about some of them. We're going to go through what those main concepts are. I, I, we'll see how far I get through this book before we get this done. So, um, so main concepts and principles of extreme ownership. On any team in any organization, all responsibility for success and failure rests with the leader. The leader must own everything in his or her world. There is no one else to blame. The best leaders don't just take responsibility for their job, they take extreme ownership of everything that impacts their mission. Now, you're going to think, okay, well, you know, what about my boss? What about, you know, all the other teams even peripherally engaged with this particular operation? Do I take EO of that? Absolutely. Yes, you do. You know, you can do more than you're doing today, and you can be, you know, you can be a bigger help to what you're doing than what you're doing today. You know, my wife owns schools, our boys, and I have very little to do with it. But how can I help her out with making sure that things are ready to go there? Uh, how can I take extreme ownership of her homeschooling? Well, I certainly can't try to control it. I'm working while they're trying to do school, but I can support the boys. You know, or I can support my wife by saying school is important. I can support her by providing, you know, the, the financial support for her to purchase our homeschool curriculum. I, you know, there's, there's a dozen different ways I can think of to support that. I can take active part in 
some components of the homeschooling as well. You know, where can I help out with physical fitness? Uh, that's definitely a part of our homeschool curriculum is working out. And if they don't see dad working out with them, you know, I can be, I'm sorry, I'm looking, there's a couch over that way in the room that I'm in right now. If I'm sitting over on the couch and my kids are, you know, half-heartedly doing jumping jacks, that's my job to get up and help them do those jumping jacks better. And it should be your job to do that too. But extreme ownership isn't a concept or a principle whose application is limited to the battlefield. This concept is the number one characteristic of any high-performance winning team in any military unit, organization, sports team, or business team in any industry. When subordinates aren't doing what they should, leaders that exercise EO cannot blame the subordinates. They must first look in the mirror at themselves. The, leadership bears, the leader bears full responsibility for explaining the strategic mission, developing the tactics, and securing the training and resources to enable the team to properly and successfully execute. Total responsibility for failure is a difficult thing to accept, and taking ownership when things go wrong requires extraordinary humility and courage. So that's, you know, that is something that's applicable to life and, and business and every part of what you do. Can you be honest with yourself and be courageous enough to admit your failing as a person, as a father, as a son, as, you know, as a daughter even to, uh, you know, in the, in the course of your life? Are you willing to step up and make that admission and truly objectively look at yourself and make that admission to yourself? That's courage. EO mandates that a leader set ego aside, accept responsibility for failures, attack weaknesses, and consistently work to build a better and more effective team. Such a leader, however, does not take credit for his or her team's successes, but bestows that honor upon his subordinate leaders and team members. So... You don't get to be a glory hound either. You know, when things go well in our family, is it, do I take full responsibility for that? No. When I make a success at work, even if I'm the only consultant working for my company with a particular client, is it, you know, my success? No. I thank my boss for enabling me with the right tools and training and techniques. You know, I may say thank you. I'll you know, definitely say thank you for something but I will also take the time to give appreciation to the company that I'm working with, uh, to the resources that I've enabled uh, to work well with the products that we're providing there, um, to my colleagues that provided me help. Usually I got some help somewhere along the line from somebody outside of, uh, outside of my own head, and, uh, but definitely thank the entire team other than myself. So there's one example of, you know, of, of something like that. So, there are three main concepts that comprise the core of extreme ownership. And the first one is one called no bad teams, only bad leaders. I'm going to skip through the example this time. I'm not going to turn this into a big war story, but one book I would highly recommend to you, put it on the video here so you can kind of see what I'm doing. And yeah, I highlight a ton for those of you watching this on YouTube, but let's make sure I don't forget something. But, uh, about Face, The Odyssey of an American Warrior by Colonel David Hackworth is a truly astounding life story of David Hackworth from the end of World War II, where he uh, joined up joined up with the Army, enlisted with the Army, took his commission, part of post-World War II activities in Italy, and uh, his stories through Korea, where he got commissioned, 
uh, and I believe he won the first of his Distinguished Service Crosses there, all the way through Vietnam, where he got up through his fifth DSC, and then through his disillusionment and taking ownership of his feelings about the Vietnam War, and publicizing those, and uh, helping, playing a part in bringing about the end of American involvement in Vietnam. So he is a true American warrior, and a, was one of the most amazing combat leaders that this country has probably ever seen uh, in the last 50, 50 years or so. But one of his main ethos within that book was there are no bad units, only bad officers. And that captures the essence of what extreme ownership is all about. It's a difficult and humbling concept. I mean, you're going to see those words probably 50 times in this book. But it's an essential mindset to building a high-performance winning team. When leaders who epitomize extreme ownership drive their teams to achieve a higher standard of performance, they must recognize that when it comes to standards as a leader, it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate. So when you set expectations, no matter what has been said or written, if substandard performance is accepted and no one's held accountable, if there are no consequences, that poor performance becomes the new standard. So things like when you're in an office and people show up at 9 and work time is supposed to be 8.30, if they start showing up at 9.05, 9.10, 9.15 and you don't say anything, that's on you. You know, if their performance continues to go down, that's on you. Uh, if you are accepting of spelling mistakes in proposal documents, if you are willing to let your kids sleep in and talk back to their mother and not understand the concept of discipline in the family, uh, that's on you. If your wife doesn't feel appreciated and doesn't feel loved and is with, you know, withholding her affection from you, that's on you. And are there, you know, could there theoretically be extenuating circumstances there because she's a person too, because they're kids also? Possibly. Yeah, I'm not going to. There's also a second book that's a follow-up to extreme ownership called The Dichotomy of Leadership. And that delves into, and well, and he's got multiple books after that as well. Uh, Leadership Strategy and Tactics is another one that provides more of a hands-on type, uh, you know, how do I use this practically? And uh, the Jocko Underground podcast is another example of, of where Jocko goes through different scenarios with people of how they've applied it and the problems they've run into and how they overcome them. But is anything done in isolation? No, absolutely not. I mean, you're dealing with another person, another entity that has a mind and thoughts and feelings of their own. But that doesn't mean that you can't take ownership of what's happening to the best, absolute best of your ability. You may fall short. I certainly have uh, lots of times, like I just mentioned, I just did a couple days ago. You know, it's it's what happens. So, you know, who knows? I mean, things can go wrong and things will go wrong in terms of how you do extreme ownership. But the important point there is to not, you know, not uh, keep your ego involved in that whole process. Set that ego aside and realize the mistake you made and learn from it. Don't forget it and correct it and do your best to never have that happen again. That's where the grace of God comes in. You know, God forgives us for our sins. And, uh, you know, if we are truly contrite, uh, you know, he will be there for us and his grace is never ending. So your ability to forgive yourself for your mistakes should be never ending as well, but you can't forget them. You have to learn from them. So everything that happens, my responsibility, even if I think it's not. Marriage miscommunication, 
losing it with my kids when they're acting out. You know, my kids yelling and screaming and running around, you know, my response to that is my responsibility. It's not, you know, what, you know, it's, it, it, you know, my kids can't control how I respond. If they're acting up, then it's my responsibility to be calm and cool and get them back together again. Don't have an attitude of victimization. Life dealt him and his boat crew members a disadvantage which justified poor performance. I have had that attitude so many times in my life. I will admit it here. You know, if I didn't get the promotion that I wanted, if I didn't, you know, get a date, you know, back in my single days, if I didn't get a date with the girl I wanted, it was somebody else's fault. It was, well, that's probably about the worst example I could probably think of. <laughs> Uh, but if, you know, if I didn't get the promotion, if I didn't get the time that I wanted in a running race, if I didn't get the, you know, if I wasn't able to afford the house that I wanted, you know, uh, you know, I'd sulk and pat and pout and, uh, you know, just be cranky about things rather than getting back on the back on the horse and working hard and trying to, you know, deal with some of my shortcomings. So what did the leader, and there's an example in here of some boat crews during SEAL Bud's training, you know, he didn't wait for others to solve his problems. His realistic assessment, acknowledgement of failure, and ownership of the problem were key to developing a plan to improve performance and ultimately win. Most important of all, he believed winning was possible. So you got to be able to set aside those failures and take another shot at it. Life is not over, like I already said once today. Life is not over until you're six feet underground. So you always have a chance to reinvent yourself. Uh, I was divorced at 30, 38, with one child, and uh, now I have four with a beautiful wife, and we built a beautiful marriage. This summer will be our 10-year anniversary, and our marriage hopefully gets a little bit stronger every day. We work at it, but it takes work, and you have to be willing to admit your mistakes, but you have to also believe that it's possible to have a good marriage and a good family. So, repetitive exceptional performance becomes became a habit. It takes doing something every day. You can't work out once a week and expect to be in good shape. You can't, you know, study uh, and improve your work habits if you're not doing something every day. And you have to step up his game. You have to step up your game to keep up with high-performing teams. Like I said, with when it comes to performance standard, it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate. Do you put up with being uh, put down by your colleagues and coworkers? Do you put up with uh, your coworkers not respecting you and not giving you the time of day when it comes to uh, assisting them on projects? Do they, do they assume that you're always going to be there to save their bacon when things go wrong? That kind of thing. So those are all examples of how people allow bad teams to fester and to uh, and to live well beyond what their useful dates are so you know it's it's not what you preach it's what you tolerate and it's you know concepts of taking ownership taking letting your ego aside put setting aside and having humility when you look at yourself and you look at your situation that you're in right now the next concept is called believe in order to convince and inspire others to follow and accomplish a mission, a leader must truly believe in the mission. If a leader does not believe, he or she will not take the risks required to overcome the inevitable challenges necessary to win. And I guess this podcast would definitely fit into that. Um, I 
I believe, you know, I, and this is where one of my spots where I'm, you know, kind of, kind of, uh, uh, can have a moments of weakness and, um, and whether or not this is going the right way and whether or not this is working the right way, um, whether or not I'm doing the right thing, even sometimes, um, I'm trying to get the, all the kinks worked out. You know, it might not look as pretty or be as exciting as other people's podcasts, but I'm trying to give concepts that are important and have been critical to my life to, to someone else. And if I even make the difference with one person, then this has all been worth it. But you have to take a risk. You have to believe in what you're doing. Uh, and that's where you can get into trouble at work and with your family. Do you believe in where your family's going? Are you 100% all in every day? Far more important than training or equipment, a resolute belief in the mission is critical for any team or organization to win and achieve big results. That goes, you know, it, it's not just in business, it's in life. It's, you know, with your kids. Do you believe that you can have a strong relationship with your kids, even if your father maybe didn't? You know, was your father absent? Was he working all the time? So you don't even know what it means to have a good father figure. But, you, you know, damn it, you can try. You can be there for your kids. Every leader must be able to detach from the immediate tactical mission and understand how it fits into strategic goals. Why are we being asked to do this? You have to be able to take a step backwards, sometimes physically, deconstruct the situation, analyze the strategic picture, and then come to a conclusion. And so what does that, what does that mean in real life? The other day, like I mentioned on Sunday, when I didn't control my emotions, I was exhausted from, we had a great weekend away with some friends. I was exhausted because our one and a half year old didn't want to sleep in his pack and play. So we probably got, you know, three, four hours of sleep each night, Friday and Saturday night. And by Sunday afternoon, early Sunday afternoon, I was done. But I let that get to me. I let my tiredness, I let my, you know, anxiety, I let my crankiness or let it all build up into crankiness that you know then when my wife said something when I was picking up books yeah I was picking up or setting down some books and my one-year-old went to grab books that he shouldn't because they were you know big kid books that were easily torn by a one-year-old I snapped at her and you know that was enough to you know she was exhausted too she was just trying to get me to move a little bit more quickly and, you know, I let that moment of weakness get to me and it took, you know, some time that day before, you know, we were able to heal that injury on my wife's part and get back, you know, to a good equilibrium. So those are the kinds of things that I think add up over time. And, but you also have to, you know, that's where the detachment part comes in is that I didn't take a step back. I didn't take a deep breath. Whatever it takes for you to detach from a situation is what you need to do to be able to uh, work your way through those types of situations. I'm getting better at them. I catch myself much more often than I used to from sending those emails, those rockets that, you know, excoriating someone in my, on, in my company about why they did what they did. I invariably might still type them up, but I don't put anybody's name in the, in the two box. Uh, and then I usually delete them afterwards and go walk away and take a break for a few minutes. So it's something that you have to be willing to take a step back, detach, and and think truly objectively about how the situation is. 
So it's likewise incumbent on senior leaders to take the time to explain and answer the questions of their junior leaders so that they too can understand why and believe all the way down the chain of command. The leader must explain not only just what to do, but why. And I'm going to use you know this in terms of my family. I'm not going to go to a business example because there's a million examples of that out there. But in terms of my family, my seven and five-year-olds, some of the biggest words or some of the most common words that come out of their mouth are the words why. Why, 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 why? You know, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to go to bed, Dad? Why why can't you read me another story? Why can't we go outside and play? Why can't we, why does the sun go around the, you know, why does the earth go around the sun? Those kinds of things. And I guess that's not a very good example, but, but they need to understand, you know, why do I have to get my clothes on? Well, you know, you've got to have the patience to be able to explain that to them. And it can't always be because I said so. Uh, you know, a better answer might be, well, I need to get, I need you to get this done so we can get out the door really quickly. And then when we're in the car, I'll be happy to explain it to you in more depth. And that kind of an example of wording is something that kids can usually get their heads around a little bit more quickly. But I've got my seven-year-old Will that's an overachiever, you know, has his morning routine done by seven o'clock in the morning on most days. And then there's my Michael, and God loves both of them, but gave them completely different morning personalities. And Michael is one of those that he could stay in pajamas all day long, every day, and he'd be happy as a clam. And and uh, you know we've got to work a lot more to understand how to how he ticks and how he needs help getting moving. Usually he needs to be more of a team uh, team environment to get dressed to get. You know, he needs some help to kind of encourage him along the way to get him going. And sometimes that's not easy when you got a seven-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old driving you crazy um, or attempting to drive you crazy. But if we can explain things to him, help him understand it, get down to his level, that usually helps him to believe in what's going on with the overall program. And the last one is check your ego. Ego clouds and disrupts everything. The planning process, the ability to take good advice, and the ability to accept constructive criticisms. Criticism. It can even stifle someone's sense of self-preservation. Often the most difficult ego to deal with is your own, and that is definitely true in my place. Um, that's been one of my struggles my entire adult life, is a sense of entitlement and a sense of ego, and always having this kind of you know, I don't know where it came from because my parents are, are incredible and were humble, salt of the earth, are humble, salt of the earth people. Um, but I built up a sense of entitlement inside my own head and it's taken me a long time to get that uh, out of there. And I'm still not perfect with it sometimes. Implementing extreme ownership requires checking your ego and operating with a high degree of humility. Admitting mistakes, taking ownership, and developing a plan to overcome challenges are integral to any successful team. Ego can prevent a leader from conducting an honest, realistic assessment of his or her own performance and the performance of the team. In the SEAL teams, we strive to be confident, but not cocky. Yeah, so everybody thinks of SEALs as these magical, mystical warriors. Well, yeah, you got to be to be able to complete the jobs and tasks that they're asked to perform. But that doesn't mean that they're jerks about it. And that is definitely something you will see from Jocko and from the other SEALs in their community that are worth 
the you know there's exceptions to any rule obviously but the the ones that i follow you can find me on social media following like mike ritland like uh, uh jocko like late babin mike sorelli uh things like that um they're definitely confident they're not cocky uh we can't think you know we take pride in the history and legacy of our organization we're confident in our skills and are eager to take on challenging missions that others cannot or aren't willing to execute but we can't ever think we are too good to fail or that our enemies are not capable, deadly, and eager to exploit our weaknesses. We must never get complacent. That's where controlling the ego is most important. And that's definitely, you know, a, an absolute must in terms of, of uh, dealing with anything in life. Uh, don't let your ego get in the way and don't let it overtake your day-to-day, uh, your day-to-day moods, your day-to-day uh, feelings and thoughts and things like that. It can be difficult. It can be very difficult when your wife is is telling you what you've done wrong for the 32nd time of, of not putting the towels in the right way in the closet or something like that. But that's where ego is absolutely critical to the overall equation. There is definitely a long military story there for checking your ego. Um, I highly recommend going back to look at it. Humility is not rolling over and whining in submission. That's the other part of it. You can still be confident, you can still be in control, you can still be taking extreme ownership, but that doesn't mean that you are submissive to whatever somebody else wants. That doesn't mean that you give in and that you give up and and let somebody else take control. That just means that you are open to listening and that you are open to new ideas and that you are receptive to those ideas and that you actually do something about them. So a lot of times you may listen, but are you really paying attention? Are you learning? Are you taking it to the next step with what you're doing? And I think that's the biggest part of that particular um, of that particular equation. We're also going to talk about the laws of combat that Jacko has in the book very quickly. Uh, we'll go into more depth later. Uh, as far I've already talked about some of this, you know, obviously as we're talking here today. Um, but the laws of combat are kind of the next step in the book, and they go into you know, how do you, what are the main principles uh, that apply to any kind of combat situation? Uh, what do you, what are the main things to keep in mind? In this case, Jocko simplified it to four. And the reason for that is that you need to keep it simple. I mean, when you're talking a combat operation, I can't obviously talk from experience, uh, but I can talk from stressful business situations where the more complex things get, the easier things will break down. And uh, that goes from a mechanical perspective, that goes from a uh, human capital perspective, that goes from a planning and software perspective. Uh, you can try to do fancy tricks and make things as complex and, and pretty and, and, and uh, uh, fancy as you'd like, but if you don't get the job done and if you don't make it repeatable and, and straightforward and, and working, then it's going to fall apart at some point. So the first principle, cover and move, the most fundamental tactic, perhaps the only tactic. Put simply, cover and move means teamwork. Departments and groups within the team must break down silos, depend on each other, and understand who depends on them. If they forsake this principle and operate independently or work against each other, the results can be catastrophic to the overall team's performance. 
So I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this at businesses I've gone into where uh, you know there are 25 silos with different copies of data and nobody's talking to each other, no, nobody's sharing, communicating, and understanding. And that's kind of part of the consulting that I do is, is helping to break down those barriers and, and understand the effect that it has on the overall, the overall uh, company posture. Uh, but it is something that people don't even realize they're doing because they, you know, they're not in a supported mode for the entire company. They're just trying to make sure that their department gets their job done. But they're not able to see the bigger picture of how that all plays together. So it falls on leaders to continually keep perspective on the strategic mission and remind the team that they're part of the greater team and the strategic mission is paramount. And again, that comes down to a leadership perspective. Leaders. Navy SEALs, lead and win. The leaders all the way down the chain of command have to be on board with what's going on. So if the strategic picture is outlined by the group vice president, that same picture or as close to it as possible has to go down each level until it gets to the to down to the rank and file employees. The overall team fails, everyone fails, even if a specific member or an element within the team did their job successfully. So if there's one guy that's got his ego in place and can't understand why, you know, the whole team sucks, but he's, you know, he's doing his job, then he's failing. And that's something that the leader of that team has to be able to recognize and uh, understand, is that the right person for my team? Even if he theoretically is a high performer, is he the right person to have if he's not willing to buy into the team mission? Accomplishing the strategic mission is the highest priority. So that's sometimes with family, you know, what is your direction as a family? Is it building your faith? Is it, is it you know, building strong children and that are happy, healthy, physically active, mentally strong and morally straight type, you know, type of children? You know, what is our strategic goal? You know, what is our strategic goal as a family? So you may need to engage your, well, you may need to, you have to engage your wife to be on the same page there. Because if you're in opposition or if you've got, you know, different directions you're taking your family, um, that's not going to, that's not going to work very well. And you're, I'm not going to say that you're going to fail because, you know, it, you know, you may get lucky and things are going to work out anyway, but it's probably going to cause you more angst than it is worth at that point in time. Keep things simple. Building the combat outpost, and this is part of a story that's in the book, building the combat outpost in the enemy territory was only the beginning. There was more to be done. One of the primary objectives in placing this combat outpost in the heart of enemy territory was to show the, the local populace that we, the Coalition of, Amer of American and Iraqi soldiers, were here to stay and that we did not fear the Al-Qaeda insurgents who had controlled most of Ramadi unchecked for years. This could not be accomplished by sitting and hiding inside heavily reinforced bases. The troops had to go out and into the neighborhoods surrounding the cop. They had to conduct a type of operation so straightforward its name requires almost no explanation, a presence patrol. It required a group of soldiers to push into enemy-held territory to establish their presence among the populace. In this situation, the mission called for a combined operation including Iraqi and American soldiers working together. And this is where it kind of gets interesting. U.S. Army officer from a military transition team uh, known as MITS, teams of U.S. soldiers and Marines built and deployed to train and combat advise 
Iraq soldiers planned to lead a group of Iraqi soldiers out into the neighborhood. The MIT leader was very excited to get out on patrol with his Iraqi soldiers and test their mettle. He'd been working and training with them for several months in another city in northern Iraq and had conducted some fairly benign patrols and combat operations with them. But this was Ramadi. There would be nothing easy or benign about patrolling into these neighborhoods. Here the enemy was determined, well-armed, and ready. Immediate discussions with the MIT leader revealed he did not fully appreciate the dangers that lay in store. I was also concerned as Iraqi soldiers might not yet be ready for the intense street fighting that was likely to take place in this section of Ramadi. I stood with Charlie with one of Charlie Pl Platoon's young SEAL officers who would lead the SEAL element accompanying the Iraqi soldiers. As the MIT leader strolled over to us and pulled out his battle map to brief us on the route he intended for the patrol, he outlined a path that snaked through the treacherous city streets and stretched clear across south-central Ramadi over to the next U.S. combat outpost to the east, Cop Eagle's Nest. This was nearly two kilometers through some of the most hostile territory in Iraq, held by a determined and vicious enemy. None of the roads had been cleared by the U.S. minesweeping team, so no doubt massive IEDs lay buried along the route. That meant U.S. armored vehicles and firepower could not get to the patrol along much of the leader's planned path without putting the vehicles at huge risk should he and his Iraqis and now our SEALs get pinned down. Beyond that, his planned route passed through battle space owned by different American units, including two U.S. Army companies, another Army battalion, and a U.S. Marine Corps company. Each had unique standard operating procedures and utilized separate radio nets. That would mean coordinating with all those units prior to launch and setting up contingency plans for help should something go wrong. The amount of water needed for such a long trek in the Iraqi summertime heat that exceeded 115 degrees Fahrenheit, along with the mass of the amount of ammunition required to penetrate so deeply into enemy territory, added up to far more than anyone could effectively fight with or carry. Even in a much more permissive or peaceful environment, the MIT leader's plan for the patrol across battle space owned by different units would be extremely complex. To do it in Ramadi was just plain crazy. Lieutenant, I appreciate your motivation to get out there and get after it, but perhaps we need to simplify this a little bit. Simplify? It is just a patrol. How complex can it get? So then Jocko starts to, uh, you know, help the, the leader to understand how difficult it is. Uh, explain the difficulties of working with multiple units, that the route hasn't been cleared, how far that is to walk in a city like Ramadi with the amount of activity that they're going to see. So he tries to suggest a simpler plan. For this first patrol, we can simplify this a little by cutting down the distance and keeping the entire patrol inside battle space owned by this company, Team Bulldog. It'll be only a few hundred meters out. I know, I know it seems short, but let's just keep it simple to start and we can expand as we get more experience. So they went out, had difficulties, it wasn't real to them yet. Within a few yards, uh, stepping outside the walls of the combat outpost, you started hearing the da 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 sounded an enemy AK-47 in the near distance. And then a SEAL machine gun answered. It was immediately joined by dozens of other weapons that let loose a hellacious barrage of fire, which confirmed to me that these were my SEALs in contact. So the leader didn't actively or didn't appreciate at all what he was going through. 
two wounded, need Kasevac, and fire support, just as, be, as he had been taught. Simple, clear, concise information, exactly what was needed. They kept their composure, they kept it simple, and they kept it straightforward. So, and that's definitely something you need to do with your kids, your wife, your family. You know, don't try to make things too difficult uh, unless you're on the same page, unless you're working together. But even then, you got to kind of work up to it. You can't do it all in one day. So, um, it's like that. So it's got to be, especially working with kids, you've got to keep things simple. Do things a step at a time. Don't tell them, go to the bathroom, get dressed, brush your teeth. You know, don't, you know, don't give them six instructions to do all at once. Because after the second one, they'll be like, uh, I'm going to go play. And they won't understand what they need to do. So, and that's something, I don't know if you can see it behind me here, but that's how we keep it simple for our kids. They have their daily checklist of activities to get done in the morning and they know that every day they wipe this off and they start over again and they get after it so thank you to my wife for putting all that together but it helps to keep it simple for them simplifying as much as possible is crucial to success when things go wrong and they inevitably do go wrong complexity compounds issues that can spiral out of control into total disaster plans and orders must be communicated in a manner that is simple, clear, and concise. You must brief to ensure the lowest common denominator on the team understands. So that's asking questions, that's checking your ego, that's asking people, do they understand and can they tell you about their part in the operation? It is critical as well that the operating relationship facilitate the ability of the frontline troops to ask questions and clarify when they don't understand. Do you expect your employees to be yes men and just, you know, when you say jump, all they do is ask how high. They don't try to understand the why part of it, that kind of thing. So that is, you know, that's critical to keeping things simple and critical to them understanding employees, friends, you know, family, all of that, helping them to understand how to, uh, how to make it work. So the next is prioritize. The next law of combat is prioritize and execute. The next law of combat is prioritize and execute. Long before dawn broke that morning, before the day's first call to prayer echoed from the minaret speakers, our group of Charlie Platoon SEALs, EOD operators, an interpreter, and Iraqi soldiers had stealthily foot patrolled under the cover of darkness through the dusty, rubble-strewn streets. We had BTF'd in, as Tony Afraidy called it, Big BTF stood for Big Tough Frogman, and if you haven't heard Tony Afraidy's podcast, he's on at least two Jocko podcasts as a character, to say the least. So that's where you carry all your stuff on your back. You toughen up, and you just carry it all in. So we had patrolled out of Cop Falcon in the early morning darkness uh, through the densely packed urban neighborhood of two-story houses, com adjoining compound walls, and heavy-duty metal gates. We had BTF'd in on foot for about one and a half kilometers, or about a mile, carrying our heavy gear and substantial firepower into another violent enemy-held neighborhood. So we had stirred up a hornet's nest, but it was exactly where we wanted to be. Our plan, go where the bad guys would, at least expect, would least expect us in order to seriously disrupt their program, kill as many enemy fighters as we could, and decrease their ability to attack nearby U.S. Army and Marine combat outposts. Lots of risk, lots of reward. And the apartment building our SEAL platoon now occupied provided an excellent tactical position, high vantage point 
higher vantage point above the buildings around us. Its thick concrete walls provided some protection. There was only one problem. The building had only one entrance and exit from the second story, a narrow stairway leading down to the street. There is no way of watching the entrance or the street surrounding it, so they decided to move. What if we tie bed sheets together and climb down from the third story windows onto the rooftop next door? It was a harebrained idea, but under the circumstances, an option that had to be seriously considered. The fourth remaining wall of the story of the second story was solid concrete with no windows, doors, or openings. We certainly couldn't go around it or over it, but we could go through it. Looks look like it's time to beat DF. Means we're going about to tackle another serious feat of strength and toughness that would challenge us to our physical limits. Let's get our sledgehammer on. They always carry a sledgehammer to make entry through locked doors and windows when necessary. LPO, notice this is the leading petty officer. One of the guys in charge is starting out and doing some of the hardest work. He began swinging the hammer with full force against the concrete wall, each swing impacting with a loud, head-jarring thwack. They rotated every few minutes as they hammered through the thick wall. They had to make it big enough for operators with rucksacks and heavy gear to walk through onto the flat rooftop of the one-story building next door. Their EOD operators went to work uh, defusing an IED planted at the doorstep. They uncovered 230mm rocket projectiles whose nose cones were packed with Semtex, a plastic explosive, which would have destroyed the whole building and wiped out half the platoon. 20 minutes of sledgehammering, they finally broke through. They st stood by to break out, pop smoke, set the IED to detonate. They pushed through the jagged, uh, through the jagged hole that they had cut in the wall. They didn't realize that part of the roof that they were on was simply a canvas covering over the rooftop and not actually a, a roof. So things just went from bad to worse. They're kind of trapped in the single exit building. Now they've got a guy seriously injured down at the bottom. So what do they have to do? Prioritize and execute. They had to remain calm, step back from the emotional immediate emotional reaction and determine the greatest priority for the team. All the training had imparted the instincts, so all of their training leading up to this, uh, plus the rapidly direct, you know, the, the rapidly direct the team from multiple priorities, they were starting to get engaged by the enemy as well. So they had the wounded soldier, they had the, the IED that was going to blow up in 10 minutes, they, had, they were getting engaged. How do you step back from that and make the right call? What's the highest priority? Set security. They had to make sure that they were still safe. They wanted desperately to get to the wounded man in the street below, but the best way they could do that was to occupy the strongest tactical position to defend ourselves. So the chief took over, started directing shooters through, flowing through the hole and onto the rooftop. Get me some guns over here. We had weapons, and all their team training imparted the instinct to prioritize and execute to the whole platoon. So each member of that team is also doing prioritize and execute. What's my most important field of fire? Where are potential threats? You know, what's the best place for me to lie in the sector that I've been given? And then get uh, next priority. Find a way to get everyone off the exposed rooftop and get to our wounded man. So they accomplish that. Next priority, ensure full head count. And then they're ready to go. And they were able to move out and get going. So on the battlefield, countless priorities compound in a snowball effect. Every challenge complex in its own right, each demanding attention. But a leader must remain calm and make the best decisions possible. So you utilize, prioritize, and execute. Relax, 
look around and make a call. And a lot of times that can mean actually taking a step backwards so you get a different perspective. So you'd be amazed what that does for you to actually physically take a step backward when you're in a situation that's getting heated, whether it's with your wife, your kids, you know, your family. Um, I'll do that at night sometimes if I'm getting stressed by all the craziness that we've got going on right now in various ways. I will go and take a minute to just go take some deep breaths somewhere. And that usually gives me a sense of perspective and gives me, gives me a way to, uh, to uh, set things together. Multiple problems and high-pressure, high-stakes environments are not exclusive to combat. I think anybody that's lived would agree with that, that you have, have a way to understand where your, um, where your issues are and lie within the, within the, you know, your own world that are causing you stress and causing you um, pressure. A particular effective means to help prioritize and execute under pressure is to stay at least a step or two ahead of real-time problems. Through careful contingency planning, a leader can anticipate likely challenges that could arise. So that can go with your family as well. You know, if you're talking with your wife about homeschooling or going on vacation, you know, or in our case, we're looking at moving into an RV full time. We have been doing nothing but contingency planning to ensure that I can work while we're doing this travel, that we can school, that, uh, you know, what happens if our RV breaks down, if our truck breaks down? How do we deal with different emergencies that are going to come up? If the team has been briefed and understand what actions to take through such likely contingencies, the team can then rapidly execute when those problems arise, even without specific direction. And that goes for your kids too. It's like doing a fire drill. Do your kids know how to get out of the house if, you know, there's a fire somewhere in the house? You know, from their bedroom, from the bathroom, from, uh, in our case, from the RV, how do they get out through their windows? Just as, as in combat, priorities can rapidly shift and change. Teams must be careful to avoid target fixation on a single issue. They cannot fail to recognize when the highest priority task shifts to something else. When the highest priority task shifts, that can be hard to definitely see when you're, when you're caught up in the moment, when you're caught up in trying to understand something and you make us you may make a bit of success in reducing the risk of a particular item and all of a sudden now something else happens to be a higher priority you know if, if uh, we're in work if if I've solved one problem but six other ones crop up or you know that one is now a priority three and I've been able to mitigate it to a certain extent now I've got to deal with my priority twos and those may be just as almost as big of a showstopper but they're they're just not a critical critical crash that a customer is seeing, but there's still critical issues that need to be solved before a go live, that kind of thing. To implement prior, and I'll close out, uh, prioritize and execute in the laws of combat. Uh, sorry, I got one more after this, but to implement, prioritize and execute in any business team or organization, a leader must evaluate the highest priority problem, lay out in simple, clear, and concise terms the highest priority effort for your team, Develop and determine a solution, seek input from key leaders and from the team where possible, direct the execution of that solution, focusing on all efforts and resources toward this priority task, that's four. Move on to the next high priority problem, wash, rinse, repeat. Priorities shift past situational awareness both up and down the chain and don't let focus on one priority cause target fixation. So it's communication, it's prioritization, it's maintaining your calm, it's maintaining your coolness, 
it's keeping a level head so that you can see what's happening as time goes on. And the last one, the last law of combat, is decentralized command. Human beings are generally not capable of managing more than six to ten people, particularly when things go sideways and inevitable contingencies arise. No one senior leader can be expected to manage dozens of individuals, much less hundreds. Teams must be broken down into manageable elements of four to five operators with a clearly designated leader. Those leaders must understand the overall mission and the ultimate goal of that mission, the commander's intent. Whatever you want to call it, it's do you understand the strategic mission of our company, of our team, of our family, of my football team, of my uh, 4-H group, of my Boy Scout troop. Junior leaders must be empowered to make decisions on key tasks necessary to accomplish that mission in the most effective and efficient manner possible. Every tactical level team leader must understand not just what to do, but why they are doing it. So that kind of goes back to the why. You've got to be willing to explain your reasons behind what you're doing, especially when it comes to your kids, to your wife, to your coworkers. Anytime you know you say, well, just do it. Just do it. That's not going to win you any friends anywhere in this world. Junior leaders must fully understand what's within their decision-making authority, the left and right limits of their responsibility. But they must also be proactive rather than reactive. They must communicate with senior leaders to recommend decisions outside their authority and pass critical information up the chain so that senior leadership can make informed strategic decisions. So you can't do it in a bubble. You know, just if you're a middle level manager, you've got to be communicating up the chain. You've got to be communicating down the chain and you can take ownership at both levels. So it's not just, uh, you know, taking extreme ownership of your team. You can take extreme ownership of your boss. And, you know, if he makes mistakes, that's on you because you may, you may not have informed him enough of what's going on, of what's happening within your organization that might have affected that decision that he made. He may have made a different decision. Or you could have subtly influenced him, you know, to meet your line of thinking. And at least he can understand, you know, that you've done your best to help him understand what's going on from your perspective. To be effectively empowered to make decisions, it's imperative that frontline leaders execute with confidence. And I'm going to use the example of my kids with this. And I, we absolutely do not want automatons as kids. We don't want them endlessly needy and dependent on us to make all their decisions for them and, you know, no ability to do anything without our say-so. That's not what we want out of our children. We also don't want rebellious kids that, are gonna, that aren't going to listen uh, when, you know, when we ask them to do something and uh, it's important that they do it. So, but that's where you empower them to act with confidence in the things that are within their purview. So if we tell them to get dressed, you know, do we tell them exactly what to wear? You know, we'll tell them, you know, get dressed warmly. It's going to be cold outside, but it's up to them to pick shirt, pants, socks, you know, that are going to, to work with that. If not, then they'll see what happens when they get outside in their cold if they've got shorts on. Do we allow them to catch a cold and get pneumonia? No. But do they learn from that example of being a little bit too cold outside because they didn't dress warmly enough? I certainly hope so.
So we try to extend that to other areas and, you know, things like this checklist, uh, things like cleaning responsibilities, things like, you know, being generally responsible for their rooms and cleaning up their own toys. And, you know, we give them guidelines, but they're expected to take ownership of that and get them done. They must have implicit trust that their senior leaders will back their decisions. So if my kid comes out wearing purple, purple pants and a and a bright red shirt or bright pink shirt or something like that, am I going to tell him to go change? No. I mean, if, if it truly doesn't matter what color his shirt is, then I just take, chalk that up to an expression of his creativity. Does the OCD control freak inside of me, you know, squint and try to uh, have an, you know, try to or want to change that decision? Absolutely. But that's where I got to bite my tongue and realize that, you know, Maybe those are his favorite colors and those are what he wanted to wear today. Who is it hurt? I mean, he's, you know, who's it really hurt? So if it is really important, then we work with them to pick out options beforehand that are, that are acceptable. And then uh, they, you know, they can pick from that, from that subset. Likewise, junior leaders must push, push situational awareness up the chain to their senior leaders to keep them informed, particularly of crucial information that affects strategic decision making. Dad, I'm out of clothes. Or Mom, I'm out of clothes. I need new clothes washed. Okay, well then I guess we have to reprioritize and get laundry done. Bring your basket out. We'll go load some up. Leaders must be free to move where they're most needed, which changes throughout the course of an operation. Empowering my kids, leading as a dad, being a husband who isn't too deferential, dude, too deferential to his wife. Those are kind of the main things that I was talking about. I guess I haven't talked about the last one yet. It's very easy to get caught up in a scenario where, at least for me, it is where my wife makes most of the decisions, and I'll be like, "Should I take the garbage out now, or you know, should I put Jackson down for a nap now, or should I change his diaper?" No. I think I can tell when he's got a poopy diaper that needs to be changed. You know, it's it's not that hard to take ownership of what's going on. If my wife sees something wrong, she'll speak up. I'm going to go lay Jackson down for a nap now. He seems pretty tired. Okay, sounds good. No, so maybe he should stay up for another half an hour so that we can get a better, longer nap out of him. All right, well, that's fine. You know, those kinds of things. I mean, but... I, I made that mistake too much in my first marriage, I think, where I was endlessly deferential, deferential to my ex because I was trying to solve some problems in that relationship by being by not rocking the boat. And in the end, I think that caused many more problems. I mean, there was lots of other problems. I'm not going to go into all of them here. Um, not yet anyway, but uh, I mean, there were tons of other problems, but that was definitely one of them was being too deferential. You know, should I put Adam down for a nap now? Should I go wash, you know, should I go to bed now? Or should we go to bed now and get up early or whatever to make it, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's so many examples I could come up with there. I'm kind of frustrated, I, you know, but or it's frustrating to not, provide 20 different examples for that. I could go on for another an hour just about all of that. But the point is, in the interest of trying not to rock the boat, I was far too deferential in, in how I interacted with my ex. And I'm trying, I still make that mistake with my current wife, and it annoys her to no end at sometimes that, uh, that I can be like that. And so it is in my nature to... Be, you know, 
based on things that happened when I was, you know, younger. My parents had some difficulties, and I think I grew conflict-averse um, because of some of that. Um, my parents have been happily married for 56 years now, I believe. But that doesn't, you know, you're going to have issues along the way. And I think some of that I allowed to make me conflict-averse. So I still find times today when I will defer to my ex without expressing my own opinion when it's different from hers. And, or I will not make a decision and ask her for guidance on what to do. And I think that that's, can be definitely the wrong thing to do sometimes. So, sustaining victory. Let's talk about that for a second. That is one part of the, the book in here as well. Um, you know, it goes, it goes into more depth about leaning up and down the chain of command. Um, it goes through some, uh, you know, one of the main concepts, but the, uh, one of the other concepts at the end of this book is discipline equals freedom. And that is Jocko's main mantra, mantra, I guess that he, that he talks about. And it is a balance between taking ownership and taking leadership and applying discipline in everything you do, but not letting that discipline be a controlling discipline. It is doing the right thing. It is not having an ego. It is getting things done, but applying discipline and structure to what you do in every aspect of your life, taking ownership for the mistakes you've made, fixing them, getting them to work right, and getting those parts of your life to work right and making it better. So extreme ownership is a way, or sorry, discipline equals freedom is a way to take that discipline, apply it to your life, and walk out the other end with the freedom to do the kinds of things that you want to do within your life. So for example, financially, I wish I would have found this concept a long time ago. Uh, wishes are worth their weight in gold, I guess. Um, but uh I did not always have financial discipline, and now that tends to straightjacket me uh, a bit in terms of how I, you know, can act financially and how our family can have freedom. So we've worked very hard to get to this point where we can travel in an RV around the country, but I do still need to work and make a fairly significant amount of money to be able to afford this lifestyle because um, we are not able to pay for the RV to pay for the truck with cash the way I would like. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is, but uh, we're doing our best to fix that and to get those paid off um, as we move into this lifestyle and put ourselves in the position for the future without doing things like sacrificing retirement and and uh, things like that. So it's not easy. Nobody ever said it was easy or that it would be easy, but, uh, um, but that's what discipline equals freedom is. You know, have the discipline to avoid the immediate gratification plan for the long haul, play the long game, and go with that perspective. So how do you sustain victory in a extreme ownership style uh, lifestyle? That number one is to plan. That's to understand where you want to take your life, both personally, with your family, with your kids, uh, professionally. You know, do you want to stay where you are? Do you want to have a side side hustle where that you can eventually turn into a business? Do you want to just take a complete 180 or 90 degree turn in your career right now, but you got a plan for it. You can't just jump off and then, and then figure it out. 
that doesn't usually work as well as you would like it to. Leading up and down the chain of command, managing and leading my boss as much as my subordinates. So that's managing and, and leading my wife as much as my kids. Um, you know, if she makes a mistake and I could have helped to prevent it by my extreme ownership, then that's on me. That's not her fault. Uh, things like that. Decisiveness amid, amid uncertainty. Step back, make a call, make the best call you can. It may, you know, it may not be perfect. It's probably not going to be perfect, but at least it's making a call and making a decision. It's moving forward. And then that gives you, hopefully that gives you some time to prior, to uh, recenter, to replan, uh, understand the perspective of where you are now, and then make things better from there. Discipline equals freedom, the dichotomy of leadership. So again, you've got to have that discipline that you apply to yourself in every aspect of your life and uh, hold yourself accountable to that and you know, never let up on that. And am I perfect on that? Definitely not, you know, uh, <laughs> far from it. So, you know, but I'm trying to do that every day and get a little bit better every day. So I think I've, you know, I've got some other points that I wanted to cover as far as applying extreme ownership to home life. You know, I'm responsible if my wife is ticked off about something the kids did. You know, what could I have done better to set example for the kids? What if I could, what could I have done up front to help avoid the situation? Less examples of that where, you know, my kids should understand what kind of behavior is expected. Are they perfect though? Are they kids? You know, can I step in and give my wife a breather to let her collect herself and, and get some separation to be able to get her mood back together uh, so that she can more effectively deal with the kids? And so the kids can calm down from her, any anger that she might have. Just an example. I'm responsible for my marriage. I'm responsible for how my kids are raised, my family relationships. I need to set the example every day. Always be questioning what you're doing and how you're doing it and keep your ego out of it. So can you take an objective look at yourself and see how you are doing on every aspect of your life? If you haven't written down, you know, uh, mission statements for every part of your life of, you know, where you are right now and what you, where you want to be, then you should be doing that. You need to empower your kids. I think I gave that example already about, you know, them getting dressed and getting their morning routine done. There's consequences to their actions if they don't get their morning routine done. You know, they don't get, you know, if we're going to allow tablet time on their iPads, if they don't have their morning routine done by the time it's tablet time, that's, that's a bummer. You know, they don't get to do it then. So they know that there's consequences to their actions, but they're also empowered to get things done on their own time frame. Applying EO to work life. It's not about me. I have to check my ego. You know, I'm not all that. There are many people that can do my job better than I can. You know, but I do my I do my best at my job a lot of times. Uh, but it is about, you know, how can our team win and succeed? Take responsibility up and down the chain. Be the owner of your career. You know, am I giving the information to my boss that he needs? Am I giving, you know, the information that... that uh, the other people on my team need that can make them succeed more. If they're failing, you know, what more could I be doing to help them out? Know the jobs of the guy above you and the guy below you. In my case, I'm kind of at the bottom of the chain as far as teams within my company, but are there jobs that my other team members are doing that I could learn? 
What about our support team? What else are they doing that they're having challenges with that I could help them with? Uh, don't be a dick. Uh, be humble. Um, I think I could be reliably accused of doing this lots of times through my career, um, of having an ego, of exercising that ego in terms of how it gets applied to certain business excuse me certain business situations, and uh, I've definitely tried to reduce the the occurrence of that type of uh, uh, ego uh, as much as humanly possible. So. Uh, I, I think I do well at problem solving in my current job, which is largely, you know, what it's made of right now. Um, but I try not to let that go to my head and let that uh, be, you know, be something that, hey, you know, look how good I, I set up this deal for success. Look how good I solved their problems and, and how happy I made. Look how good. Look how well I solved their problems. And uh, uh, I guess I wasn't an English major in college, but how well I solved their problems and how successful they're being. You know, look at a great job I did. Aren't I awesome? I need a raise. And trust those you work with implicitly. That means your wife, your kids, your family, you know, your people you work with uh, on their team, that kind of thing. You know, do they always deserve it? Uh, maybe, maybe not. But then that's another issue that when we get to the dichotomy of leadership, we'll talk about that more. How do you deal with those scenarios where you might have to fish or cut bait kind of thing? And how do I apply EO to myself? I can control my moods. I can control my focus and prioritization. I can control my porn habit. Like I, you know, can I control it or did I give it to God? Did I make a decision to deal with it? Absolutely. Um, but the point of extreme ownership is that I am dealing with my junk. I am dealing with my moods. The other day I was explaining to a friend how I am trying to deal with being tired. Our one and a half year old still is not sleeping through the night, despite our best efforts. A lot of it has to do with kind of the situation of our sleeping arrangements right now aren't optimal. Uh, but that's, that's what it is. It is what it is. Could we, if he's not going to sleep, does that mean the next day I am exhausted and tired and not doing anything and just you know, wallowing in my exhaustion and taking three naps and things like that. I do not have the luxury of that. Um, I don't even have the luxury of sitting there, you know, like a bump on a log necessarily, or just, you know, moping around slowly. And do I do that at times? Absolutely. You know, I'm not perfect and I am not going to claim to be perfect, but what am I trying to do? I'm trying to set aside the tiredness, do some jumping jacks, do something to get the blood flowing. And, and, you know, don't make excuses for being tired. I mean, try to get to bed earlier than, you know, the next night. Try to, uh, you know, what else can we do to set up, set our son up for success with sleeping through the night? Uh, there's probably other things we can do that we're still exploring. So don't make an excuse for your mood. You know, if you are sad, you know, what can you do to pull yourself out of it? If you're moping around being depressed, it's up to you to do something about that. Are there, yeah, are there medical considerations? Absolutely. I've been on depression medication. There's been times when I thought I needed it and took it, and it definitely helped. But is there a point in time where you've got to take ownership of your mood and your thoughts and your actions? Absolutely, and and deal with it. So. You have, to, you have to be willing to turn extreme ownership internal as well and not have an ego when you look at yourself. 
And does this all come off as proselytizing to others or, you know, um, you know, telling others what to do? Does this mean I take extreme ownership? If I see my friend over there, he's doing the wrong thing. Do I go over and tell him that? Not necessarily. You know, are you going to be a jerk and and uh, just say, hey, you're doing that wrong? You know, that's then that's your ego getting in the middle of that and and doing the wrong thing. You know, you have to take ownership of the relationship, but you have to go case by case and say, what's the best way for me to approach this problem? And part of that might be saying this relationship isn't something I want to be a part of anymore and taking ownership that way. But it may also be finding a path to helping whoever that is deal with the trauma that's been in their life. And maybe you got to invest yourself in that to help them solve those problems or at least realize there's a problem there. And then consistency over time. You got to do it every day. You got to work at it every day. You have to evaluate yourself constantly. You know, change your perspective, step back, you know, look at yourself and see what you're missing. And this kind of journey is something that is definitely a never-ending process that's, that uh, you have to do every day. I try to set myself up for success with a daily planner where the night before I uh, go through and list my top priorities for today. I meant to talk about that in the prioritize and execute, but didn't. So, you know, there's one example I've got to learn from as far as planning my podcast a little bit better um, and making sure I cover everything. But even last night, I was too tired with, no, actually, I did do it last night. But there have been plenty of nights where I did not take the time before bed to set up my priorities for the next day. And uh, that has come back to bite me because it's usually hard in the morning or difficult in the morning to find that time with work and kids and everything else getting in the way. Even working from home, it can be difficult. So, um, But you will backslide. You will make mistakes. You know, right now I am... Uh, not in the shape that I need to be. Um, I'm starting to work myself back into it. and But I have definitely let myself slide and put on 20 pounds over the last six months and need to get that taken off again so I can get back in, into the activity levels that I want to be and get the strength back so I can you know do the things I want to do. And that is on me. That is not my wife's fault. That's not my in-law's fault. That's not my kid's fault. That's on me. I've got to make time. So my challenge of the week for you, find one new way that you can take ownership for your family. That's not to say you're going to control anything, just that you'll look at a family situation differently and attempt to have a new perspective of ownership that didn't exist before. So how can you be a better father to your kids? How can you be a better husband to your wife? How can you be a better wife to your husband? or daughter to your parents, that kind of thing. Anything that you can think of, how can you improve one of those family situations? You know, can you make a point to ask your wife to start a new Bible devotional, Bible couples devotional with you tonight? Uh, don't wait till Thursday. Don't wait till next week. Start it tonight. I'll bet your wife will be open to that. Um, or just ask her to sit down and talk about her day. What kind of struggles did she have? What kind of tough things did she have happen? Uh, I'll bet she'll, you know, I'll bet she'll have a different perspective. But then don't let your ego come in and say, "Yeah, look at the one thing that I did," and you know, be, you know, all crazy about it. Do something tomorrow. Don't expect anything out of it. 
you know, just try to be a better husband. Try to be a better father. If you lose your temper when your kids act out at you, you know, try to take a step back, take a deep breath, and whisper to them. Ask them for a hug. Ask them to, you know, come here and help understand what's going on. Usually find with my kids, the quieter I talk, the more they listen. So a thought of the day, thought of the podcast, Extreme Ownership has been life-changing for me. Get this book, listen to Jocko's podcast, you know, find all the mediums that he has approached uh, the world. And, you know, he is not God. He is not, you know, he is, he is just man himself who has his own issues day in and day out, just like we all do. But it's an amazing example, and it's an amazing book that he's brought to this world. So, you know, if you want to combine that with concepts like stoicism, with your faith, uh, your own personal ideas, go for it. Just, I highly recommend taking a look at this book and seeing where it can take you. So thank you for tuning in today. Uh, I hope this podcast, you know, leave us some comments, leave us, leave me some feedback so that we can understand if this is meaningful, if this is taking you somewhere. Um, I know it's definitely given me some things to think about and things that I can do better. Um, uh, my workout habit is slacking and I need to re-engage with that. So hopefully by, you know, within the next few podcasts here, I'll be, you know, able to report that I've been able to make some progress there. I continue to make progress with my kids and my wife and my family as we make some changes in our lives. But I hope that, uh, you know, this podcast meant something to someone out there. So what's coming up next? Uh, next week, we have another interview from a colleague of mine, former colleague who's an entrepreneur. He is a professional four-wheeler racer. Uh, so I hope you and we're going to talk about the balance of all of that versus being a vice president of a software company. And how we kind of interacted over the years. We go way back as well. So I hope you're going to find that interesting about his approach to life and his, you know, how he's kind of taken the bull by the horns there. So look forward to that. And uh, thank you for joining us on the Grow to Amazing podcast. Uh, I am out.